there are very few professions that are as gratifying as this. We are so fortunate to be architects. It comes with a lot of responsibility. But you know what? What else would we do? <laughs> Hi. Hello. 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 Hello, and welcome to Architecting. This is a podcast about the lives of architects. About the people and stories behind the buildings that we see around us and the images that brought them to life. And with the very international world that we live in. This show will purposefully be local and narrow. Only focusing on the Colorado community of designers. Hi, I'm the host of Architecting. Adam Wagner. I'm a Denver-based architect. I'm married to an architect. I have two architecture degrees and I've worked for a dozen different architecture firms in three different countries. But for these last five years, I've been rooted in Denver where I am at Open Studio Architecture and I teach at the University of Colorado, Denver. I love connecting with, with other designers and learning from their experiences. Now I'm broadcasting these stories with the goal of creating a stronger local community. That brings us to our guest today, a founder of Shears Atkins Rothmore Architects, Chris Shears. So for me, Chris uh, really is a giant in our, in our Colorado design community. He and his firm uh, continue to produce high-quality projects that, that really enrich our urban fabric. They work through the spectrum of project types, from multifamily residential uh, to educational, hospitality, civic, office, interiors, and master planning. And look, I was going to say that, that they're an award-winning architecture firm, and I'm sure they are, uh, but I couldn't find that normal kind of uh, awards link on their website. So I don't think that awards uh, is something that they or, or Chris advertise or, or strive towards. And I think this was an attitude that came across in my conversation with Chris. Um, I'd never met him before. And as you'll hear, it turns out that we grew up in small Kansas towns that were only about 30 minutes away from each other. Um, and it really seems like Chris is a, is a very humble and hardworking guy who has gotten a large amount of uh, interventions, as he calls them, uh, that direct his, directed his architectural path from Kansas to Minnesota to Baltimore to Harvard, and finally uh, to where he has always wanted to be in Colorado. So he, along with his partners, Jesse Atkins and Andy Rockmore, have built up a firm where it really seems uh, the quality of life and their impact on the architectural fabric is is high. So here on the night of the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl dismantling is Chris's story. I hope you enjoy. How interesting that we uh, found, we realized we had grown up 20 miles apart this entire world <laughs> 20 miles apart in two small towns in central kansas gosh i know i you know i, I thank you for coming on here you're, you're one of these guests that that hasn't that doesn't know me before this and i got uh my good friend adam rude to connect us uh and and um yeah and so we just connected a little bit over over email and it turned out where our hometowns are 30 miles away 
Well, it was really very nice of Adam to make that introduction. He is, by the way, extremely talented and uh, skilled architect and uh, a really important person in our office. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's a good friend. Uh, w before the pandemic, we used to beat up on each other in racquetball. Uh, <laughs> neither of us were all that good, but we would just try to hit it real hard at each other. And uh, <laughs> he had this frustrating way of coming back and beating me by a few points. But uh, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So thanks, thanks for coming on. Thanks for joining. What's uh, what's your day been like so far? What's what's a Friday in the life of Chris Shears? Well, it's been uh, it's been uh, I'm I'm in the office and very few other people are. So I, I always start with a, answering that question with a little bit lonely because I'm happiest when everybody's in the office. Uh, but uh, it's been quiet in a you know, sort of a normal Friday in the office with Zoom calls and just the way that we're practicing architecture this, these days which is fascinating, exciting, I think. Yeah, because how many, how many people do you have in the firm right now? It, it varies, I, I, I rarely know actually, but it, it's, it's between 55 and 60, depending on how you count. And uh, we're in the process of adding a few uh, future colleagues. So um, we're right in that range and sort of a, uh, middle-sized firm, I guess, if not actually a smaller firm compared to a lot of firms. It's a nice size. It's a manageable size, and we have, uh, I'm fortunate to work with an amazing group of people. That's what makes me happy. Yeah. I mean, but that, that, that does leave a pretty empty, empty office right now, right? So how, how many people are in the, in the space normal uh, day? On a given day, it can vary between three and seven or eight and I wish more people could come into the office I think every every architectural firm is of course dealing with the same issues because th those those who are older they have children who are grown and independent we don't have daycare uh, issues we don't have school issues we don't have the, uh, the home essentially homeschooling uh, responsibilities so I have that luxury of being in the office and have been in the office with the exception of a few, just a few days since last March, which is very nice. I'm very happy. To, you know, I'm always happiest in my office. <laughs> yeah, when you get used to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, nice. Well, speaking of being happy, so uh, I like to start off this, this show with a, a question people sometimes struggle with, but it's, it's nice to kind of compare and contrast people. So who, who would you say you are? What, what would be a, a, a two-line bio of, for Chris Shears? Uh, a two-line bio. Well, uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm a person who grew up in central Kansas, as you know, and have had uh, a lot of great opportunities and have wound up uh, as a uh, husband, father, uh, architect, in a great city that I love. And uh, I, uh, I'm an architect that thoroughly enjoys what I do every day and have ever since I began studying architecture in the, believe it or not, in the early 70s. Nice, yeah, I like that. 
So let's talk about let's talk about our 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 shared uh, our sh shared motherland where you grew up. So you grew up in uh, in Hutchinson, Kansas, right? Right. Tell me tell me a little bit about that. I mean, obviously I know about it, but tell us about Hutch and and kind of your family and and the beginnings there. Well, um, just like your hometown, McPherson, uh, I think Hutchinson is just a if you were just enlarged McPherson, that would be Hutchinson. Yeah. Train elevators. You're on a, a railroad, uh, mainline railroad. You're in the middle of wheat country. Uh, you are closer to I-70 than we are. We were, uh, but it's a, mostly an agricultural community that has a couple of larger companies that began there: uh, salt mining, groceries. Uh, the uh, Dillon Corporation started there. My family uh, was in highway construction, hmm. so I was always around engineers and very aware of construction. I was on a lot of construction sites as a little boy. I was always the, the little boy that was, that was raised up onto an asphalt paving machine and you know, riding in the lap of the operator, and, and I still think that the smell of asphalt is one of my great memories. Hmm. But, but, um, so I grew up in a construction family, but my father was a pediatrician. Hmm. He was sort of the outlier in the family, and, uh, and, and architects in Hutchinson, there weren't really too many architects, as there probably weren't in McPherson. So I was not exposed to that profession as much as I was exposed to other professions like, uh, uh, for example, uh, medicine, which is where I actually hmm. started uh, in my uh, education. And I actually, I think, would have been very happy as a pediatrician like my father because I, I enjoy children. Uh, but, but it was a great, as you know, a great place to grow up. There were not that many distractions. But my family uh, it just inherently uh, traveled a lot. And we spent a good deal of uh, growing up uh, in Aspen in the early days. Mm. Aspen, uh, when the streets were not paid. It was the one way my father could get away from the telephone as a pediatrician. You can imagine. Mm. And so we would escape uh, to Aspen. And uh, there I began to, to become aware of, of what Pepke and Herbert Beyer and, and all those people were doing uh, with the Aspen Institute and developing a ski area. It was really interesting to watch as a young person, but it didn't trigger necessarily an interest in architecture. It triggered an interest in climbing, which became a passion for me uh, at an early age. And I think I climbed my first 14er, uh, which was Mount Harvard when I was 10 years old. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's perfect. Yeah. Wow. So what do you think, what do you think, I'm, I'm interested, like, what, in, what do you think growing up in, in Kansas did for you, kind of looking back architecturally now? I mean, I think... You know, you mentioned like the grain silos. I think also, you know, with Hutch, the, the salt mines is such an amazing, like when you go down into the actual salt mines, it's such an amazing yeah. architectural space, you know. Uh, yeah. but, then the, but then the sort of flatness of, of Kansas versus the verticality of Aspen, I mean. Yes, I think uh, that it, it was a, um, it, it, it was so flat and so non-urban that in one respect, it made me interested in 
cities and, and uh, urban situations. I can remember there's one building in Hutchinson, the tallest building, which is the Wiley building. And my, my dad had his medical office in the Wiley building. And I just loved the elevators. And I loved to be around the building. I liked mm. the which was across from the Fox Theater. You know, and I, I always felt this was really interesting. When my, when my grandparents were building a new home, I haven't thought about this in 50 years, um, I spent a lot of time in, a, in an apartment, which it was above a bank that my grandfather had built. And, and it started in Hutchinson. And it was an apartment and across the street. They were building a new hotel, hmm. the first modern building in Hutchinson. And I, I just remember so well sitting at the window with Flossie, their dog, watching concrete being poured. So I think that, that with all of us who become architects, there are these moments in our past, even back to being very small, when we're influenced and we have no idea we're being influenced. But that was the first big building in Hutchinson. And I didn't really get to a city except for Kansas City at Thanksgiving to visit my grandparents uh, until I was, um, uh, I think I was 18 when I, hmm. went to, when I went to Europe for three months. And on the way, stopped in New York. And of course, every, even then, I didn't, I didn't have any idea that I would pursue this profession. Really? So, so that was 18. So what, what happened yet yeah, when you graduated high school and, and were deciding what was next? Well, I, I, was, a, I was in a pre-med program at the uh, University of Kansas. And uh, I'd applied to Dartmouth and I was rejected. Mm. You know, really disappointed because they had, they had a ski team. You know, that's yeah. the <laughs> Dartmouth. Uh, but... Uh, I wound up at the University of Kansas, and I hadn't really had a, a, a good a few years there, but I didn't do well. And uh, there were too many distractions. I think I was too old. I wasn't really ready for college. But there wasn't an alternative then, because the alternative was to be drafted. Hmm. I was doing the Vietnam War. Uh, I had a low number. And so you really had to stay in school. Uh, but there was a point at which I realized that this was not what I should be doing which was a real turning point. And on a climbing trip with my father in the uh, Holy Cross wilderness, uh, we had a very candid conversation. And I had mentioned that I had an English course in the School of Architecture, which was Marvin Hall. And um, that I had walked through uh, the design studios they were on the same floor. And I did that every time I had that had a course, that particular class two times a week. And I would walk through the, the studios. And the moment I said that, my dad looked at me and he said, my God, why didn't we figure that out? Before? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, you had my full support. And so it's going to take you three, three and a half more years in college. Uh, go for it. I then wound up at the University of Minnesota for an undergraduate five-year degree. That's the short version of a long story. <laughs> so, but, but how did you, you were inspired by KU's architecture school, but then you ended up going to, to Minnesota. What happened there? Well, the real truth, Adam, is that I did enroll uh, that fall. I was, I was running the mountaineering program at San Juan Western Camps. So I, I spent the whole summer climbing. Dad came down at the end and we went climbing together. Had our discussion. 
I was back in the uh, University of Kansas program that fall. I just drove immediately to Lawrence, got in the program, and started. I had a professor, Curtis Biesinger, who worked for Fritz Benedict and Herbert Beyer and Aspen. You know, hmm. What a coincidence. He and I became very close. I did really well. And at the end of, and, and KU was not the school it is now. It's an excellent school now. Uh, but it was sort of in some throes of disorganization. He, brought, he uh, asked me to come in his office, and he told me out he wanted me to transfer. Hmm. He said, you're doing so well, and, and I think that you need to go to a better school. And I was shocked. You know, I was just shocked. Uh, but that's what I did. I looked at schools mostly in the Midwest because I was being a small-town Kansas boy. I was a little bit leery of East and West Coast. And um, wound up at the University of Minnesota, which was wonderful. Rapson was the dean there. And uh, the emphasis was on drawing and building models. And it was just absolutely a joyful experience for three and a half years. Hmm. So it was, so your dad was saying, yeah, that, that's where you should be going. You, you should be getting into architecture. And, and was it the same kind of spark for you? And then, and then oh. was it what you expected when you went to school? Was it, it just I, kind of I kept knew, going up or? Well, I knew immediately when we had that conversation. In fact, we, the truth is we were, uh, we were both drinking out of a little glass of scotch because to sort of loosen ourselves up because we knew this was an amazing opportunity for a father-son discussion. And um, so it, it was just so obvious because I had spent all my growing up years building things, everything from model railroads to a 13-level treehouse. <laughs> and, you know, I, I had my own workshop and all my own equipment. I had my own skill saw when I was 12 years old, I think. And um, but so it was all so obvious. And I think often... There are things in life where you just wonder why didn't I realize this before? You know? uh, but but from then on, it was just it was fun, and it's been fun now for fifty some years or whatever it is, and it continues to be fun. And I think that's the great thing about this profession is that we do, uh, for the most part, enjoy what we do. We have fun doing it. It's challenging, and that's part of the fun. Uh, but the other part of it, to answer part of your question, is I think one of the best ways to become educated is to be in an architectural program because you do learn the hard way, uh, the interesting way to solve problems. And that's, that's so much a part of life. And I've uh, often had high school students or, or young people in the office, and we always welcome them. And I always, if, if they're at all questioning, getting into architecture, I always just tell them that if you, if you don't eventually practice architecture, at least you have an education that has taught you how to solve problems and you can take that anywhere. Right. Yeah. And you, and, and you definitely have to work for it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that really, education, that once you get through that, you can uh, get through most. So, so you graduated from Minnesota and uh, then what was next? Well, I had another intervention. Uh, <laughs> I was working for two architects. <laughs> You're getting a kick out of the center. Uh, I was working for two great architects in Minneapolis. They were really the best uh, younger architects. I had a firm of about 35 people, and I was fortunate enough to work for them while I was in school. They were also 
two of the most respected professors teaching studios, design studios. And, and uh, James had been to MIT and uh, Harvard and, uh, and Tom had been to, to MIT. So they had an East Coast orientation and knew a lot of people around the country, a lot of other architects. And they, they took me into the conference room and they said, Chris, uh, we'd like to offer you a job when you graduate. This was in just prior to spring break, my last year. But they said, but we'd like you to consider an alternative. And of course, what I'm thinking is, I just want to move back to Colorado, ski and climb. <laughs> you know, with the French Benedict and Aspen, that's, that's, nothing could be better than that. And they said, we will pull strings for you on the East Coast and make sure you have a great job and a great firm. So what could I say? So I spent my spring break when everybody else was going other places with a Kodak carousel with a, my portfolio on the East Coast visiting architects that they had arranged meetings with and wound up uh, getting the first offer was from uh, uh, RTK in Baltimore. Hmm. The, the original beginnings of that firm, there were 60 people in that firm then, which is about the size of our firm. And they've, of course, become this huge firm over all this time. And so, you know, I packed everything up, up and with a U-Haul trailer and drove to Baltimore and didn't know so. You know, just, it was so exciting, you know, so exciting. I got a letter from the Architects Collab Collaborative about a year later, which put me in a really difficult position because I was doing well. Um, it was a great firm. I was working on great projects. But Cambridge had been the, the, the and Boston really had been my favorite uh, stop on my trip, you know, in, in addition to New York. And they, they sent me a letter and offered me a job. And a few weeks later, I was back with a U-Haul trailer <laughs> driving to Boston, not knowing a soul in Boston either. <laughs> and I wound up at the Architects Collab Collaborative, which was, of course, Walter Grove's firm. Ah, uh, so, I mean, that's so funny. So what, what was the firm in Minnesota that, what was their name? Adney Stegenberg. I was okay. in the firm and, and, and they, they, they were, it just, it was just an amazing firm. Uh, I, you know, I think that, that for every young architect, it's, it's important. The first job is really important because it, it identifies values and it, and, and, and it makes a big impression on you. And I think about that a lot in this company. And, and I teach, and I think a lot about how it's not just about designing buildings, but it's about the values you have as a person and as a professional. And I was fortunate to, to have had these, this series of mentors and people who intervened in my life to say, this is what you should do. And it made all the difference, made all the difference. Yeah, because that's it's so kind of profound to say, "Hey, we have a good we have a good employee now. Now go off and like do do better things, right?" I mean, like yeah. for them to say, "Get out of here and like and try oh, something out," and then so then then when you went to the architects architects collaborative, was was Gropius still there at, the, at that time? Or Gropius had died just a couple of years. Oh, okay. Or unfortunately, but there was the residue. You know, like where, you know <laughs> he left a lot was, of residue. Yeah, it, it, it was there. I mean, Grove was very, very much in everybody's minds, uh, and as was uh, obviously the principles of the Bauhaus. It was definitely a firm that did modern work, and it just 
recently been named uh, the AA firm of the year. And it was just saturated with young people and people who were from all over the world. It was like a graduate school. And it was right in Harvard Square. And Ooh. you know, there are 130, I don't know how many there are now, 130 college students in Boston and Cambridge. And so it was a rich environment socially. And there were parties every night and, and excuses to, to do all sorts of things. There were lectures at MIT and Harvard and it, it was just about as rich an environment as you could be in as a young architect. So how, how long was it before you, you applied there then to Harvard? Uh, I was at Tech for a number of years. I, another interesting story is that uh, one day uh, Walter Gropius' secretary, Sarita, uh, was uh, renowned, in the, and she was respected as much as Gropius had been because she had been Gropius' secretary. And she uh, walked in with a, uh, uh, into my studio with this young lady uh, who had just uh, uh, moved to Boston and who had been in secretarial school. And uh, she, she brought this young lady back to my desk and introduced me. And I stood up like any gentleman would and looked at her. And I looked at Soretta and Soretta sort of smiled. And I'd gotten to know Soretta pretty well. As I, I had become acquainted with Issa Gropius as well. She was still alive and still mm. around quite a bit. And as they walked away, I looked at Betsy and I thought, I'm going to marry her. And then, <laughs> and then nine months later, I did. Nine so, months? Yeah, so wow. Was, his secretary introduced us, but there was this, there was a, a um, sort of a, an atmosphere at TAC that, that uh, was about collaboration. It wasn't just a, you know, the name of the company. It was everybody worked together. It didn't matter how young, old you were, uh, or what school you went to. Uh, it was all about just doing really good work every day and long hours and uh, and work all over the world, you know, which was, once again, it's just a really rich environment. And the, of course, in addition to everything else, I met my wife, so. <laughs> so. Right, but it, the, the, the question at Harvard is I was in, it was another intervention. Uh, there was a bar underneath the Brattle Theater, uh, uh, which was the, uh, Oh, gosh, forgetting the name of it. The Casablanca. And anybody who's ever been in Cambridge knows where the Casablanca is. And, and uh, there were a few architects I was working with who said, you know, Shears, let's go have a drink. And we were at the corner table, and they all teamed up on me and said, you need to apply to Harvard or MIT. And I said, no, I can't do that. I said, I have a five-year undergraduate degree. I'm very happy. I'm working at this great firm. Why should I do that? And they said, well, we just decided that that's what you're going to do. And I said, well, I'll never get in. I'll never be accepted. Uh, and they said, yes, you will. And <laughs> they were, it was relentless. So I put a portfolio together and uh, submitted it. And four weeks later, I was accepted, and I have no idea what happened behind the scenes, but um, these were all MIT and Harvard graduates, and they, I think, probably pulled strings, and I'm embarrassed to say that, uh, but that was, that was the, the next intervention. <laughs> so did, did, you, did you 
was it a question between Harvard and MIT or was, was Harvard the... It wasn't, although I had thought about graduate school before that and I was interested in uh, possibly University of Pennsylvania because of uh, Ian McCard was there. I was interested mm. in large scale land planning. And so I was able to actually put a program together uh, that, at Harvard that was both land planning and architecture and spent a lot of time with Carl Steinitz he was a renowned Harvard professor and uh, still alive. He's an amazing guy. Uh, he uh, uh, was both an architect and a landscape architect. And one of, really one of the best educators, uh, I think, uh, in, in, in history. I mean, this guy was just amazing. And I learned so much from him. It gave me a, a different perspective and, and, and an interest in planning and urban design that I didn't have before. And I think when you go to graduate school, you need to complement what you have already done. Uh, Harvard had a one-year MR program, which a lot of my, three of my Minnesota buddies uh, actually wound up in. But that was just one year, and that's not a long amount of time. I wanted a, I wanted a two-year program. I, I wanted to really uh, immerse myself in that whole experience. I did work uh, part-time during that, uh, during those two years, uh, but uh, not as much as I had in undergraduate school. It, it was just too, it was too demanding. You know? Yeah. So, so it was, was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So was, was there the, the master of urban planning that the GSD has now, or did you say you kind of had to put together a I was planning a, program? I was in a landscape program that I had, and I talked to Steinitz about this uh, in, in, the, in depth. We had a lot of conversations. And um, once you are accepted to uh, most graduate schools, I think you can then design your own curriculum. And I was interested in large scale uh, land planning, much like you know, the McCartan overlay approach where you would uh, analyze every aspect of a large piece of property or a city and then go through a, a very analytical process to determine what should happen there. Hmm. And so, and I was interested in that in particular because I did have in my sights moving back to Colorado. Hmm. And I felt that that would be important because Colorado was not at that time as much of an urban environment. Denver was not much of a city then, Adam. It really wasn't. And, uh, and I felt I could take that experience uh, regarding land to Colorado with an architectural background and be involved in planning as much as in, uh, in architecture. So that was, the, that was the, uh, the program I put together. And I, was, I took uh, a course at the business school in development economics. And I took a course in the law school hmm. in uh, planning law, two of the most difficult unbelievably stressful <laughs> courses I have ever taken in my life. I was so distraught uh, that I never picked up my grades. <laughs> Evidently, really? I did really well. But, you know, I didn't even want to know. I didn't even <laughs> want to know. <laughs> but you're just... these, these, these Harvard Business School guys, you know. And uh, I say guys because I can't remember any women being in that, that class. Uh, and then uh, you know, with a bunch of Harvard Business School people, I mean, it was it was the case study 
Crossroads where they would call on you. So you had to read all this material and say, Mr. Shears, could you state the, 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 the facts of the case? And, oh, my God. You You're like, no, but I can draw it for you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sweat through those courses. Uh, so I did a lot. I used that opportunity to just broaden my knowledge. Hmm. And, and, it, and it worked out fairly well, I think. I learned a lot. And so when you when you got out of there, was it was it okay? Yeah, now it's now it's time for Colorado, or was there another weird was, intervention that? No, and why and why Colorado? Well, I've grown up, uh, spent a lot of time in Colorado, and, and you know, going back to Kansas, I think a lot of people, and you probably as well, would spend your vacations in Colorado. We not only spend our vacations; we spent Christmas in Aspen. Mm. We spent Spring break in Aspen. I spent my summers out here uh, climbing mountains uh, at San Juan Western camps, and so my entire you know that part of me had to be in the Western United States. Hmm. And so ultimately, after after the Harvard degree, I was it was the time to make that move, either to stay in Boston. As difficult it was to to leave Boston. I can tell you it was that. I remember the, you know, flying up out of Boston and looking down at, at uh, the Charles River in Cambridge and thinking, are we making a mistake? Uh, well, we didn't, uh, but you never know, you know, what would have happened in Boston, but I had to be in the West. And fortunately, Betsy was interested in joining me. Mm -hmm. she, she wasn't as familiar with the Western United States. And, and I had, uh, I had an interview with three different companies uh, and had three different offers, one in Boulder, one in Denver with uh, uh, Bill Muchow, one in Aspen with, with uh, Fritz Benedict, hmm. and one in Boulder with a firm that was doing real estate development and more planning. And I, um, I asked Betsy, you know, because she had, a, had to have a say in this, I said, where would you like to live? And she picked Boulder. And, so we've lived in Boulder ever since. But I realized after a while that really that fishbowl was not the right one for me. And that Denver was going to be a city. And it all started with Mayor Pena's Imagine a Great City campaign theme, which uh, you can't underestimate as being one of the most important phrases in our history. Because that triggered everything that we're all, I think, benefiting from today. That was the, that was the, it was a uh, campaign advertisement that I heard on the radio. And I literally drove, I was in, happened to be in Denver that day, and I literally drove off to a side street and sat there and listened to it. And I thought, this is it. And then I started to get involved in, in uh, the Lower Downtown, in Lower Downtown, and trying to to learn as much about Denver as I could, even though I lived in Boulder. So, so when that, was that? When when was that? That was that was happening. That was in uh, uh, about uh, you know the early eighties, eighty two, mm. three, and then started my own firm with three other guys in Boulder, which we had to dissolve in the mid eighties when I think sixty percent of the architects in, in Denver <sighs> left. It was a it was an amazing. Uh, uh, it was really a, a depression. Kind of from, from, the, from oil, like uh, mostly triggering well, that? Well, yes. And, uh, 
And so I, I you know, I struggled for a few years, and uh, we had a new baby on the way, and uh, and I joined for a year. I, I was asked to be the business director of business development for for Mortensen. Oh, really? For the Western United States, and I took off a year with the understanding I would get back to what I really love. Uh, but uh, spent a year really on on that side of the table and thoroughly enjoyed that, really. But then had to get back uh, in the, as, as the economy came back and the opportunities came back. And, uh, wow. So, okay. So you were at a firm, you, you quit there, started a firm with three other people. Yeah. Then you quit there, went to Mortensen, a construction company. After a year, then quit and then started another company. That's right. I started, I was working with another uh, architect, sole proprietor, James Leach. He's a terrific guy, terrific. Uh, he retired uh, after a few years, but he, uh, he and I began to move our, our uh, attention to Denver. And, the, and in fact, uh, we together uh, designed Palace Lofts, which was the first new residential project in uh, more downtown, which sort of proved the market. All the other projects then have been adaptive reuses, and a couple of them have been Dana Crawford's projects, the Acme, the Edbrook, for example. Uh, but uh, we were introduced to a developer who had a large piece of property on Blake Street, and fortuitously, we were able to pull that together. We teamed with RNL on that project. It was a great relationship, and and that was what launched, uh, I will, I'll say, my Denver career. Uh, and I, I was much more comfortable you know, with that. But I always, I always like how like nonchalantly people say that now, especially like at your part of the, your time of the career of saying like, yeah, I got palace lofts. But it's like of having a of trying to start a firm. Oh. So did you? So you you had that firm, and you're like, okay, I got to leave Mortensen, and then did, did that come along before you left Mortensen, or was it you were sitting in an office doing 30 iterations of your logo until that that came in? You know, like I've always had uh, had projects. You, know, I, hmm. you can't start a firm without projects. Uh, I uh, James Lee and I had done another project, an early project in Boulder, the Academy, which was a large senior project was what we call the service enriched retirement community which is still an amazing project i think uh, adaptive reuse of the national register property and i've been president of historic boulder and you know i so i was fortunate to be selected to do that i'm not sure why they ever did i, I had no experience to do it but it became a real success and uh, and then uh, so that was a large project and then Palace Lofts was a large project, and that just led to, to other work. But hmm. I, I don't think you can really intelligently start a new firm without uh, a, a good deal of, of business. And then even, even much later, after James really retired uh, and uh, uh, Jesse Atkins and I had met in my collaborations with R&L, he was a young architect, you know, fresh out of Michigan, and uh, we shared the same values, very talented, driven, uh, 
a guy who is can get more things done in a day than than you can imagine. And uh, we had just hit it off, and so we had a discussion one day, and to make a longer story short, is again uh, decided that we would start a firm. I had two major projects: one in Ithaca, New York, and one in San in uh, San Diego. That hmm. uh, the construction value was probably then in the neighborhood of over a hundred million dollars. So we, we spent the next uh, year and a half or two years flying back between New York and, and San Diego. So we had all this, this work. So we, we started with a financial situation that was enviable. Yeah, because I think, you know, it's interesting you say you, you, you can't intelligently start a firm without a project, but I think you're probably the first architect on this show that's had a project when they started. Most of them start by saying, I, I had a baby, it was a recession, I started an architecture <laughs> firm, it was 252 days before I got uh, a house. And so what, what do you think, what, what, uh, what's your, what's your kind of, what was your kind of secret then? Was it, I mean, you had such a varied kind of background with, it was with, with business and law and then construction and, it, I mean, so you're saying it's work? I mean, it, it, it was work. Uh, I, you, know, I, you know, it was hard work, but it was also being comfortable with lots of different people and being able uh, to uh, communicate well. Uh, I've always been a sort of an outgoing person, uh, and uh, I have a lot of friends, and I thoroughly enjoy people. And I think it was a combination of that. Plus, uh, I, I had done with Jesse. Jesse uh, and I had worked on a project in Boulder, a parking structure for the city with Arnell when Jesse was in Arnell, which was a huge success. And then we had done, I had done Palace Lofts, uh, which evolved into a huge financial success for the developer. And I had a planning director in Ithaca, New York, Call me and say, did you do the, the parking structure in Boulder? And I said, yes. And he said, I want you here in two weeks. We want to do one in Ithaca. And then a real estate developer uh, in uh, San Diego walked into the office and he said, did you do Palace Lofts? And I said, yeah. And he said, I want to do one in San Diego. So we did that. And then he bought a piece of property and we did a 33-story point tower. Hmm. Project. So we had, you know, we just had, uh, it, was it luck? Yeah. Uh, to some extent, I think a lot of life is. Uh, but it was also an awful lot of hard work. It was 12-hour days. And you know, I started driving back and forth to Denver 30-some years ago. I actually enjoy that commute, by the way. But then <laughs> it's, we did, it's gotten we, worse, probably, but yeah. <laughs> yeah but, you know, then, then it was possible to begin to... to uh, uh, to do projects in other cities, you know, and, and that, because once you've done cities, projects in other cities, it, you realize, you know, how to do it. You understand how to do it, how to affiliate with architects in those communities, how to, how to get a grasp on the culture and, and the, you know, regional characteristics, uh, the economics of those places. And that's something we, we've been uh, successful doing in this office is we can go anywhere and, and I think do good work uh, with a lot of effort. Yeah, because I mean, it had to be. So when 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 were you? When did Jesse come on board with you? 
when that's 17 years ago okay whatever okay. that it was, yeah it was actually just after 9-11 i think and uh, not the best time to start a firm but we had the business you know uh, and uh, we gradually built the business we then uh, had we hired uh, kevin Hieronymus uh, and uh, andy rockmore and Dean Smith, and they're all principals and partners in the company right now. So, uh, the, you know, the other trick to this, the other, you, you've got to hire uh, good people who share your values and are interested in working hard. They have to be good people. And those are five of the best, four of the best people I know. Hmm. Absolutely. Uh, they're, uh, you just can't find better professionals. And I can, I can say as well that everybody else in our firm, when we hire people, we're very careful about uh, not just the skills necessarily, not just, not just their experience, but who they are as people. And I think that's, that's how we build a culture in this office that is, is enviable. And I hope that's true. Uh, it's certainly yeah. not, but, I, but I think it is. Uh, and, and, and that's just the way we do things. So did you, are you able to, to articulate those, those values and early on and, you know, besides just the kind of hard work? I mean, what, what is, what is SAR kind of? Well, that's, that's, <laughs> well, that's a, that's a, a long answer. Um, I think uh, that, that the most important value is, is a humility and a desire mm. to work with other people uh, together, you know, as teams. And I know that everybody talks about that, but I think we actually do that quite well. Those who we wouldn't hire would be those who are ego-driven, uh, status-driven, uh, who ask questions that aren't related directly to just being a good architect and doing great work for our clients. Uh, I think the other thing that is important in our office is that we're not about uh, single buildings. We're about our city. We're about, and we're about cities, other cities as well. We, we like to, uh, uh, to think broadly about a neighborhood, for example, when we design a building. And I think everybody in our office shares that value, that interest. And let's face it, it's, it's fascinating. You know, there's nothing more interesting than a city, and there's nothing more fun than working on a building for over a year and then watching it be placed during construction into a, a piece of property that will make a big difference in a neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what's, you know, it's interesting with your, with your planning background. I actually, I actually kind of had the same approach after I went to Kansas State. I, I, I applied, I applied to, to Harvard for the master, uh, for the planning degree. Yeah, and, I, and I didn't get in. I didn't have the friends at Harvard. So I had to settle for <laughs> Yale. But, but, the, but uh, um, you know, I, I, I thought it was interesting that, um, yeah, just think, being able to think about the fabric in a bigger way. But, you know, and so, so I can see that obviously kind of 
from what I know about you in the community, you know, working on the kind of like river mile and these bigger uh, master planning kind of projects. Um, so, ha so it, how, how do you guys work in the firm? Are, are you, are you mostly at this kind of master planning level and, 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 and Andy and Jesse kind of like, do you, do you section it off in that way or how does it work? Not necessarily. Um, we, <laughs> it just sort of happens. Um, my, uh, I'll say that the, the more of the, the uh, project management role and company management roles are uh, with my four partners. Uh, I'm involved, but my attitude, and this may sound strange, is that at, at my age, uh, I have no intention of retiring, by the way. But <laughs> like a good architect. I, I have wanted, uh, I want everybody else in this firm to excel. And I don't want to be the voice or the image of the company just because I'm older, just because I, you know, I have gray hair. I want everybody else to excel and reach their own professional uh, objectives. That's, that's the legacy that I leave. So I, I intentionally try not to disrupt. I intentionally try not to be the person talking in all the, the sessions about what that have to do with management or whatever. I want everybody else to, to grow and do that and have the, 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 uh, the luxury of, of saying they did it. So I, I try to, to, to take sort of a back seat. On, and even on, on design, I, I will not dictate design. I will be involved in the design just as with other team members. I'm much more interested in their thinking than my own. I'm, but at, at any given time, I'm involved, yes, in, in the larger planning projects, uh, but I'm also in, always involved in, in a few architectural projects and have a general idea of what's happening on the other 25 or 30 projects that we have in the office at any one time. But that's difficult to do. Yeah. And I think the, the, the frustration that, that I have is that I, I don't know more about what everybody's doing, and I don't have, even in a smaller firm like this, I don't get to know everybody as well as I'd like to get to know them. But I want them to excel. I want them to, to do what they want to do and go home every night just really happy. Hmm. You know, that's, that's, the, that, that's the satisfaction that I get. And that's why I teach. That's why I want to teach, and I teach a design studio every studio every fall, which, uh, not surprisingly, is about infill development and infill. Uh, you know, it's about cities, and uh, it's just a sort of a giving back kind of attitude that I have. Yeah. When when did you start teaching there at CU Denver? I, I, I've taught now three years. Three years, and I yeah. And just to uh, continue uh, to do that. And uh, and your teaching is it's the it's the fifth it's the fifth studio of undergrad, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I remember you you hearing you you coming in and and kind of seeing the effect of that. I mean, I think again having that kind of master 
planning experience in, in undergrad is, yeah, it's, it's pretty powerful. And so what are you, what's the sort of, um, I don't want to say like, what are you getting out of it? But, but what, are, what are, is it allowing you to further your own kind of um, uh, thoughts and theories within master, with, within design, you know? I, I think it definitely does. It's not what I do, but right. it, yeah. it definitely expands my uh, thinking. It's not unusual, for example, at least before this last fall when we were teaching uh, in the studios, not unusual for a student to pull up a, a project on a screen just as a reference. And I would say, what project is that? Yeah. And they'd say, well, it, it's that. It's, it's, here's where it is. And, and we'd talk about it. That, so I'd learn. And, then, of course, there were a lot, of, a lot of situations where I would already know. Because I keep track of what's going on pretty well. But every now and then, you get this new idea from the students, and that's enriching. But, but I, uh, I, I do it really because I think that architects, at the proper time, if they can, are obligated to teach. And, and I think another reason I do it is that it made such a difference when I was at the University of Minnesota to have almost the entire design faculty being practicing professionals mm. that, that won AI honor awards and were, were award-winning firms uh, that were very you know, interesting, wonderful places to work. So the students would be in a studio with a professor in the afternoon and they'd go work on building a model in their office in the evening. <laughs> you know, and and that's, that's the way it was there. We all thrived on those two cultures, the, the culture of the school and the culture of the offices that we worked in. So we were, we were getting, we were, we were getting, we were learning in the offices as well as in the studio. And there was a lot of you know, cross fertilization between the two. Very rich environment. I wish there was more of that. And of course, that's why I decided to teach. I always knew I wanted to for that reason, because I knew that it worked really well. Yeah. That's, that's how Rapson set up the, the, the school. He, he brought in all the great architects in Minneapolis. He said, you're going to teach. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so, because I've been teaching and I, I, I teach, I've been teaching studio and then um, kind of seminars and things over there. Uh, but it's, you know, and, and it's so life-giving and, and inspiring, but it's, it's also can be so difficult to do balancing that professional life and, and that, you know, and, uh, but, but, uh, but, but Very yeah, good. just, just those connections that you're able to, to get and that kind of energy. And I think, you know, this isn't the way, reason I do it either, but just, but seeing that, that idea of having that prompt, right. And putting it out and having 15 or 18 people take it their own direction. Right. And see those iterations, um, I think is, is always pretty powerful, but, I, I think it's extremely, uh, I, I agree with you, it's extremely difficult. I'm just exhausted. At yeah, the yeah. Studio. And because you're working on, you can work on, depending on how much time you spend with each, spend with each student on, over the board, you can be involved in 12 different projects in one afternoon. And each time you sit down, you've got to think about 
what their story is, what they're trying to do, a lot about who they are. Yeah. And where they came from, you know, I was trying to know, you know where did you come from? Central Kansas, New York City. And, and so you know what they're thinking. You try to slip in to their world and their brain as they're designing. And that's exhausting. It's just absolutely yeah. I know. I'm so glad you're teaching too, Adam. I mean, it is, it's something that we ought to do. And, I, and Adam. Yeah, and Adam, yeah. Teaches, Andre Barros teaches. Yeah, Andre, yeah. And. I mean, they're, hell, they're much better at it than I am, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and Andre, especially, is a pretty deep guy. A pretty, uh, uh, but. He's so much fun to be around. Yeah. So, so I'm interested. So what, um, so you have these experiences of, of Minnesota, especially with TAC and then Harvard, and, and you're coming back. Um, what, and it, and it kind of like I see kind of distills into some some theories or some ideas about architecture. Do you do you have a project that you've done that's 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 really like hitting kind of all those things of of you saying like this is what architecture can be should be as the kind of pinnacle of, of what you've done? Well, I, I as all architects would say, I think I'm, I'm never satisfied. Yeah, you know that feeling. Of, those who are listening know that feeling too. I look at some projects. I, I was just talking about Palace Lofts recently to, to uh, some people, and, and I said, "I'd never do it that way." And I, I, but I always like to blame it on the zoning because the zoning required all that stepping, and I'm not a stepper. I don't like. I just, you know, I don't like, frankly, uh, a lot of the form-based zoning uh, prescription that. I think it's just not right, especially in, in cities. It's probably maybe all right in Seaside, you know, but it's but there's so many different sites, so many different constraints on sites and contexts that it's hard to apply, you know, one formula to all of them. Uh, but of course, we all work within those bounds. We have to. But so having said that, um, I think that, that one that I, I that has sort of surprised me over the years. Uh, what people have said is the addition to the flour mill, mm. uh, which, and, it, and the story there is that Dana Crawford, who I think you know, I've known yeah. since I was a called me one day and she said, I need your help and I need it quickly. And <laughs> in, in five days, I built a model. <laughs> and that's exactly what's there. Five days. And I, sometimes I use that as an example. We spend so much time on, you know, in, in conceptual design and schematic design. And sometimes this is the first set, the first solution is just the one that works. And uh, so Dana and I uh, sort of laugh about that. But it's been a, I, I think that the test of a good project is does it endure? And that project has endured uh, very well, I think. Uh, another one uh, that I'm, I think, particularly pleased with is is that the, it was known as Pearl West in uh, Boulder, which is a, an infill project. And I think I say that because it's it's a very sensitive infill project that was subject to an extremely rigorous entitlement process in Boulder, and somehow survived. And I see that as a 
as a, an accomplishment. Uh, it's by the fact that some people think that they've lost their view of the Flatirons from the end of the Pearl Street Mall. Uh, but uh, those, those two projects, I think, are two that I'm very proud of. But, you know, I can look around at the wall that is in the conference room and be proud of a, a lot of these projects. And, of course, when I say proud, I'm, I've got to include the people who were right next to me through the design process and through that entitlement process. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's not just the architects in this office, but it's the contractors and it's the city officials and it's all those people that, that together handle these very complex projects. It's not one architect. It's not even a few architects. Uh, and that's, I think, something else about our office. We recognize that it is uh, it's, there are a lot of people involved in each one of these projects, and uh, they deserve to, uh, to share the awards when they're given. Yeah, Ed, that's nice. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting how you, you're, you're sitting right now in front of a, a map of, of Denver, you know, and, and I can kind of see when you're looking around, like just that feeling of, of having such an impact on the city and being kind of the looking around there. and. And it's interesting you brought up uh, Dana Crawford again, you know, because she's obviously another person that's had like a huge, profound impact on the city. And I thought it was funny in, in our emails back and forth that, that you, you like grew up with her. She's from Salina, Kansas, the other town that's 30 minutes away from our hometowns. And, yeah. uh, really interesting about those three communities. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, it's, I, I don't know where I saw it, or maybe you said it, but just that like she she called you for the project because because you knew silos right like because you had this, this Kansas know. background uh, right she knew that I knew uh, about grain elevators and so what does that mean it means nothing it's it, I mean who's designed a grain elevator you know they're slip formed you I mean, I'm sure you can remember growing up when when they were building you see they work all night they never quit they just yeah pour, pour, and it, the forms rise and it's pretty interesting to watch um so no one designs those things, and I don't know that she could be influenced. But, but she knew that that I understood the characteristics of the flour mill well enough to not to not try to to exert a different kind of design philosophy uh, with a building next door, and. I mean, you couldn't do a postmodern building next door. You couldn't do necessarily a very modern building. It wouldn't have been right. Although I'm sure you, you could, you know. But so I, what I did very quickly over the weekend was a, a building that, that, that was in some ways imitating, but also modern in its own way and entirely concrete. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, and, it's, and, and we just had so much fun doing that. And I remember the day that uh, we were on site and, the, and there was a coal train going by. And, and, that, and she said, uh, uh, you know, some people kind of worry about the noise. And by the way, we'd always recognize that we'd grown up along mainline railroads. So we'd, you know, you always hear the train whistle at night. It's very romantic. And she said, she, she actually used a 
four-letter word I will not use. <laughs> she said, well, if they don't like trains, to hell with it. You know, <laughs> speaking of people who would live in this, this building. And if you're ever in that building and when the trains go by, it's really, you don't hear, hear them. You hear the rumble, but it's, it's like music. You know, I, every time I'm there and we're sitting in her living room, if the train goes by, I run over the window. Mm. I got to see it. You know, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but she, she's a remarkable person. Uh, and is is probably the most important person in Denver's uh, history. She, uh, of course, was active in preservation well before the Penny administration. But it was her work that that made it very clear that preservation of buildings and neighborhoods were going to be a great part of Denver's future. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, yeah, of course, such a such a big impact there. But I think going back to the grain elevators, you know, you said you say no, no one or they're not designed or no one's inspired by them. Right. But, you know, towards a, towards a, towards a new architecture, you know, Corbu is, is, you know, it's it's so central in his in, influence. And I think well, gro growing fun. growing up, you know, where where we did. And I and, and I was not only only from a small town. I I, I lived outside the town, so it was like even oh. less around. So I was in the country, and and it was always the the feeling of the the horizon and of like the half dome was always so kind of profound right. and like that that emptiness and that 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 datum right. And Enough. and the thing that that really breaks those was the silos, right? And it's it's kind of yeah. like because of the absence of the rest of the kind of urban fabric, you're able to kind of focus on those more. And I feel like in that same way, you know, the absence allows you to kind of focus and, and, um, and I think be a little more, or not more thoughtful, but, but it allows you to appreciate that, that fabric that then you're able to kind of build up or imagine. And I see that kind of with you. It does. I mean, it's, a, it's the, uh, if, if you think about, uh, the Midwest. Uh, you can't help but think about grain elevators. It, you know, another really interesting thing about about where we grew up is if you fly over Kansas at a low, I've flown a lot in, in uh, small airplanes across Kansas, and those are your reference points even as a pilot. Like you see the grain elevator before you see the the development pattern underneath it. So it's the rail lines. The grain elevators, Main Street, and that's those are the develop that's the development pattern, which is is probably not been studied enough. By the way, the other interesting thing, the opportunity to fly over Kansas in the fall on Friday night. Mm. Guess what you see? Yeah. Every single community, Friday night lights. That's all you see. It's it's just lights all over the state. Yeah. And you know, from Texas to to uh, Minnesota. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, yeah, that's that that plays a big a big role. You know, I said I was joking to you before that we're just kind of the ultimate rivals all the way through because Hutchison and McPherson were the big were big rivals in high school, and then you went to Kansas, and I went to Kansas State, and then you went to Harvard, and right. I went to Yale. And, uh, I'm I'm just glad we're able to talk civilly together right now. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I do remember uh, playing basketball in uh, McPherson, and I was the shortest. Uh, <laughs> I think I played 
five minutes. You know, maybe <laughs> any game. You know, it, it was it was almost embarrassing. I was so short. Uh, I do remember playing in in McPherson, and uh, I also remember the Harvard Yale games. Mm -hmm. And they were, as I said in my email, the the largest cocktail party ever held. I mean. <laughs> I can remember standing in the end zone with a bottle of scotch, just standing there. You know, I mean, everybody just just partied before and after, during and after. I don't think anybody ever watched the game. Someone asked me, well, who won the game? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. I, I had that same kind of experience. And, you know, you're only there at grad school for two years, and they switched right. locations. So you're really only there for one game, and it's – Right. And it's so, it, but um, you probably had the same experience. Like coming from Kansas State, you know, oh. we had a sixty thousand person stadium, and then I go yeah. to this Harvard Yale, and I'm like, these guys look like high schoolers. But uh, but yeah, it was it wasn't really for the football, but uh, yeah, for the experience. But um, you know, you know that you're you're fortunate, New Haven. You know, in that whole experience, when I mean, what a great place to be as well. I mean, here you are, you know, small town Kansas boy ending up in, on the East Coast, just like I did, and going through the same, uh, uh, you know, almost it, feeling intimidated, you know, in the beginning, and then suddenly realizing, oh, God, you could keep up with those people. And because students were from everywhere, you were all sort of in the same situation. Yeah. And you learned so much from other students, as much from the other students as your professors. Yeah, right. You have this sort of expectation of what a Ivy League is, and then you go and you you realize it's it's really just people from everywhere that are are very serious and 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 work hard. I think. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, you, you, had, you had a question, I think, uh, that you you posed. What what do you have any experience with uh, you know famous architects? Yeah, yeah, what, yeah. And I, I do have one. I, what's the time? I guess we're, oh, this is, we're, we're way over time. Uh, but uh, uh, Frank Gehry came to us, uh, one of my studios for a week. Hmm. And we had a one-week design problem. And this is, of course, in 1979. And he was very well known at that point. I don't think he was a yeah. star architect. No one used that term then. But he was extremely well known. And... And one of the most congenial, humble uh, persons you'd ever meet, and so much fun, and just spending the week, and would work, you know, till late at night, and he'd be around, and then we'd go out and would walk over into Harvard Square and drink, mm -hmm. and we just had this wonderful time with Frank Gehry for a week, and I remember once we were drinking, and we were, of course, in awe of this guy, and at one point he said. He said, oh, there was this article in this magazine and they were talking about my, my work. And he said, I don't know what they were talking about. <laughs> he said, they had no idea what I was, what I was doing or what I was doing. And so he, that's how humble he was. But he was a lot of uh, fun to be around. I've, and I have a lot of other architect stories, but we don't have the time to do that. We'll, we'll have to do a part two and, and go into this. I, my, my Frank Gehry story was we had a, we had a lecture at Yale and, and I think he was doing it or somebody else. And I, and I walked out of the bathroom and I about ran into this guy <laughs> and I looked down and it was Frank Gary. And it was like, I just instantly became tongue tied and I, and I, 
kind of like tried to shake his hand and like say, oh, it's nice to meet you. And, yeah. and, and he kind of looked down at my hand. I was like, I oh, mean, I hope I washed my hands. I think I did, yeah. but he still, he still, he still shook it. But uh, yeah. That is, that is really funny. You just did that. And you don't, you don't know what to, to do. I remember when I, when I met uh, a guy, uh, Robert O. Anderson, who was uh, one of the, he's actually the, the guy who was a, uh, responsible after Walter Pepe for Aspen's growth and change and the Institute and Herbert Byer and all that stuff, which is a big part of my life. Uh, and I turned around at an opening of Herbert Byer's work at the Denver Art Museum, and I was looking straight at Robert O. Anderson. Yeah. And Betsy was standing next to me. I couldn't speak. I absolutely couldn't speak. And, and Betsy then introduced me. She said, <laughs> Oh, Mr. Anderson, uh, this is my husband, Chris. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's saying, like, what are you talking about? This guy's, in the, this guy's no celebrity. And, and to us, oh. right, it's a, yeah, it's a thing. And, and, but, you know, you're, you're, you're that guy now to, to some people. So, you know. Oh, no, no. No, you I'm, know. I'm not, <laughs> I'm just a, we're just small town Kansas. Small town Kansas boys. Yeah, you never, you never get out. Well, you know, I, I, I just really appreciate you coming on here. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, y yeah, your, your impact on the community is really profound. And, and, and I think especially in the way, like, talking about what the firm that you've created, and, and I, I really see that. And I see, you know, the people that stay there for a long time and the quality people that, that you have. And I think that, that obviously says a lot about kind of your leadership and the way you you push things forward and um and then and also how you're 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 helping at at ceu i think that's it's it's really profound and great and thanks thanks for talking with me i want to once thanks. once all this once all this craziness is over i want to buy you a beer and hear more stories but i'll, I'll buy you know one, one last thing <laughs> i that i think is so important and that is you know, once again as we started there's there are very few professions there's gratifying is this. We are so fortunate to be architects. It comes with a lot of responsibility. But you know what what else would we do? <laughs> I know. Not be a doctor, that's for sure, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well thank you very much. Uh, yeah, thanks. Well, nice meeting you. Meeting <laughs> you. All uh, right. See ya. Thank you for listening to this week's show. You can visit architecting.com, that's architect-ing.com, to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day -day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S. So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.